That melody is from Yehi Shalom. There should be peace for all of us in any ways we need peace today in our hearts and in our homes and in our world. And I'm so excited to be back with you all here for class 10 on Rene Descartes. Um, a lot to discuss here together. Let's start with a poll question. Do you experience your mind and body as separate? Yes. No. I don't know. Do we, you experience the realm of your mind, your thought, your feelings, your uh, experience as something separate from your body in any way or really in no way? Wow. Okay. 44% here experience some level of difference or separation from mind and body. 33% do not. And 22% don't know. Um, and that's wonderful. Okay, great. So we are fast forwarding to the um, the 17th century. I mean, yes, he was a baby in the 16th, but really the 17th century. Um, and we're going to look at these questions. Is there anything we can be sure that we know? And how can we know that we know anything at all? In a world in which there is misinformational misinformation and intentional lying elsewhere, and every sometimes everywhere we look, is there anyone we can trust? Can we even trust ourselves? Rene Descartes was born in France at a transformative time at the height of the scientific revolution. As a child, he was a meditator because he was ill. So he'd stay in bed late into the morning thinking as a sick child. In his teenage years, he was immersed in math. He then served as a soldier in the Dutch States Army and resided in the Netherlands for the rest of his life. Living in a scientific intellectual landscape where it was believed that in a, a, attaining knowledge through verifiable methods, he dedicated his philosophical project to ensuring that truth and knowledge must have firm foundations. Rather than simply accept that the metaphysical assumptions of the past, Descartes was convinced that one must begin philosophizing by starting with doubt. One must be skeptical of all that one knows until one finds those points of truth that cannot be questioned and then build on top of them. Right? This is very radical. This is not 20th century. This is 17th century, where every, uh, virtually everything is taken for granted, religious truths, scientific truths of the day. Descartes, Descartes' methodological skepticism begins in his meditations of first philosophy by arguing that one cannot rely on their senses alone to determine whether or not something exists. Our senses can often deceive us. Just because we hear someone's voice doesn't mean they are actually present with us, for it could just be an audio recording. 
Furthermore, every time we dream, we experience a world that looks and feels like our own, but in the end is only an illusion. While these examples may seem trivial to us, Descartes is committed to finding truth and knowledge that cannot be doubted under any circumstance. He goes so far as to raise the possibility that perhaps an evil demon, he calls it, has deceived him into believing everything he thinks is true. Imagine this, friends. Today, with AI, I mean, AI is posing a whole lot of moral and legal challenges. For example, one can now create a video to be used in a court of law, which is a complete creation of someone doing a crime that's not them. You can have a picture of someone and create a whole scenario by video of them doing something and saying something with their own voice that they never did, never said. And how in a court of law can somebody contest that? And so the whole notion of videos we see as being true, audio recordings, Tom Hanks recently said they're, they're going to make movies with his body and voice far beyond his life, right? Because we can just do these kinds of things now. And so in our era, how can we even know the things that we hear, voices we trust, things we see, visual we trust is accurate. Now go back to Descartes. He's going in the, the internal world, the evil demon within my own head or, or, or heart. Um, that's very Christian language, the language of demon. But of course, that's the world he's immersed in. Um, that how can I even believe the voice inside my head? So here's what he writes. I will suppose then, not that deity who is sovereignly good in the fountain of truth, but that some malignant de demon who is at once exceedingly potent and deceitful has employed all his artifice to deceive me. I will suppose that the sky, the air, the earth, colors, figures, sounds, and all external things are nothing better than the illusions of dreams by means of which this being has laid snares for my credulity. I will consider myself as without hands, eyes, flesh, blood, and any of the senses, and as falsely believing that I am possessed by these. So friends, um, it's not hard to imagine in Jewish thought what we call a yetzer hara, an evil inclination, kind of a voice within us. Maybe you were a drug user at one point, and you can remember. Or maybe you, after a major surgery, you were on oxycodone or the like, a major painkiller, and you remember having thoughts you don't normally have. Maybe you had a dream, a nightmare that you felt was really real. We've all had some experience, I presume, where after that experience, we realized that that was an illusion. We realized we believed something to be true externally or internally that in fact was an illusion. And what if large segments of our thoughts or feelings were immersed in such an illusion. In a sense, Descartes is raising a question we hear even today. How do we know that we don't live in a computer simulation? Isn't it possible that everything we experience is an illusion, produced by, produced by something we do not see or know? I appreciate Alex's choice of this matrix, like uh, <laughs> this is really kind of gets hits the point home. However, even if this were to be true, Descartes argues in his second mediation, excuse me, meditation, that there is at least one fact we can be certain about, our very existence. 
In meditation number two, Descartes writes, but how do I know that there is not something of which it is impossible to entertain the slightest doubt? Is there not a God or some being who causes these thoughts to arise in my mind? But why suppose there's such a being? For it may be I myself am capable of producing them. Am I then at least not something? Doubtless then I exist since I am deceived. And let him deceive me as he may. He can never bring it about that I am nothing. So long as I shall be conscious that I am something. This proposition, I am, I exist, is necessarily true each time it is expressed by me or conceived in my mind. So everything might be wrong, but the one thing you can't deceive me about is that I am here, that I exist. Now, many philosophers since Descartes are going to challenge even that. Are we so sure that I am me? Are we so sure that I exist in this world? Are we so sure this is not a dream? Are we so sure that I am not just a computer, right, hooked up to a machine? Um, but Descartes thinks this is the one thing he knows. Even if he is being deceived by an evil demon, Descartes concludes there must be a him for the demon to deceive. The self must surely exist, even if nothing else does. This idea is central to much of Descartes' work, and he famously, very famously, expresses it with the Latin phrase, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. I don't know if it's cogito or cogito, um, but ergo sum, I know. Published after his death in the search for truth by natural light. He explains it in the following fashion. It is necessary to know what doubt is and what thought is before we can be fully persuaded of this reasoning. I doubt, therefore I am. Or what is the same, I think, therefore I am. Right? So I think for there I am not is just the notion of cognition, right? I can kind of think what I'm doing, but it's this higher level of I can doubt I can question, right? That's how I know I'm here. Imagine we're in hospice in our last days and we're not so sure we're alive anymore. Imagine we're kind of not quite in a coma, but we're almost approaching a state of unconsciousness. And imagine in this kind of subliminal space, we're asking ourselves, am I still here? I think I hear things around me, but I don't recognize those voices. I can't see anything, but I imagine they're there. I have some vague memory of somebody bringing me into this bed, but I don't really know how I got here. Is this me? All my experience doesn't resonate. I'm, I can't even really move my body. I'm in a state of paralysis. I can't move to even know. I feel I have to pee. I must have a catheter in because I feel some relief of peeing, but I don't um, really know what's happening because I have this constant urge to pee, right? I feel thirsty, but I'm not drinking. There must be an IV in me, right? Some sense of like, do I exist, right? Forget even this moment where we feel so clear 
right? You're here with Shmuley in a Zoom on a Tuesday at 10 o'clock Pacific. We're here, right? Like we like, pinch yourself, like, <laughs> like make yourself bleed. Don't make yourself bleed. But, you know, from the famous song, I, I bleed just to know I'm alive, right? Like blood kind of reminds me of my mortality that I'm here. But go back to the hospice moment of like, my gosh, how do I know I'm still in this world? Descartes' emphasis on the act of thinking as indubitably proving our existence leads to what is known as Cartesian dualism. The notion that the mind exists independently of the body. Because there are times when our senses deceive us, our mind must exist apart from the body if it is to correct them, right? Imagine you walk into the backyard and you see your hose but you think it's a snake. And so your amygdala freaks out and emotionally you're a wreck because you're in a state of fear of this snake. Now your mind notices that it is a, um, your mind notices it's a hose, but your body is still in a state of fear, right? So now your mind knows it's a hose, not a snake, but your body is still in the fear of the snake, right? What's going on? My mind told me it's a, it's a hose, it's not a snake. But my body doesn't understand that. Sometimes our body is still in a state of panic, even when our mind tells it to calm down. We could think of many scenarios like that, where our body is experiencing something very different than our mind. Our mind is trying to correct the state of our body. In fact, one of the problems of purely cognitive therapy with all of its benefits is that we can't solve our emotional problems merely through correcting thinking errors. Thinking errors are a big part of it, but part of what we have to do is we have to recondition the body as well to be in line with where we, where our mind is telling it we want it to be. So we actually know today that um, te techniques of body relaxation, techniques of, 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 um, bringing the body into a different state is crucial for the mind as well. This idea serves to buttress that his premise that our epistemic foundation cannot be built only by accepting truth and knowledge because we have been told so by others, right? Someone tells us what's true. We know they're smarter than us, but we just can't accept their truth, right? We are, we've all been to a place like this um, because our truth is so ingrained in us that even if everyone around us is telling us something, we might not be able to believe it. We have to know things through reason and not simply because a figure of authority has stated them to be true. This is very hard for some people um, to understand. In Descartes' worldview, we can't take anything as a given. We have to actively remove our preconceptions and recognize that nothing is beyond doubt. Descartes wants us to embrace skepticism, not because the world is ultimately unknowable, as a postmodernist might suggest, as we'll see later, but in order to build a stronger foundation for reason, right? Postmodernists might say, we just can't know stuff, right? But Descartes says, no, we can know stuff. But the only way to know it is to doubt it first. Once you doubt it and you go through a more rigorous process of questioning everything, then you can know. Right. So this is still pre-modern, even though it's setting the stage. So, friends, for me, I find this approach approach to be a little bit unreasonable, though not entirely alien to the Jewish tradition, of course.
Judaism's truth is dependent not on philosophical proofs, but on accepting the testimony of those who came before us. To give just one example, we believe the Torah to potentially um, entail some level of divine revelation, perhaps, not because it can be logically deduced, but because our ancestors believed so. Judaism at its core is a tradition passed down from one generation to the next, a fact Moses emphasizes in his final speech to the Jewish people before his death in Deuteronomy 31.7. He says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of ages past. Ask your parent who will inform you, your elders who will tell you. Right? Imagine your parent told you something about their grandparents. We don't engage in some philosophical inquiry to understand its truth. We trust our parent who trusted their parent who trusted their parent. And we assume there's some level of truth to that continuity of what our family has told us. So now you take 33 generations, um, roughly, and you say, um, you know, um, there was this thing called the Sabbath. And yes, it may be spiritually meaningful to me, but we have some sense of a divine origin here, even though I can't prove that, because all of our ancestors told us about this thing called the Sabbath. It's not purely logical and moral, like honor your parents or don't steal, don't kill. Those things we can just philosophically like make sense of. The Sabbath is not a philosophical project. It's a notion that sitting with your family and saying a blessing and pausing from work is something of a divine origin, right? I can't prove that, but that's what all the lineage of parents told me. So this is not just a suggestion, but in fact, something that is acted acted out explicitly. That being said, the Jewish tradition does encourage, of course, a certain amount of skepticism especially when it comes to religious authority. It was known that when a student would ask the influential thinker, Rabbi Soloveitchik, a question of Jewish practice, he would reply, and what would you say if I were not here for you to ask me? Right? Instead of just give him an answer, oh, here's what you should do religiously, he would say, what would you do if you couldn't ask me? Training people to think religiously, morally, rather than just lean on an authority because they know more. As, re as religious people, we should not just accept what others, even figures of religious authority, tell us to do. Rather, a major part of being a spiritual person or a religious person, however we may understand ourselves, means thinking through issues for ourselves. Yes, there should be support and an appreciation for expertise, of course. But in the end, the intellectual and moral burden is upon us. Now, some people just need that. Somebody is calling their rabbi with an end-of-life decision. Do we pull the plug or not, right? They just can't think through the issue. Sometimes they want someone to tell them what to do, and that's okay. A child also needs someone to tell them what to do sometimes, and that's okay. And sometimes all of us need someone to affirm our own intuitions, right? We need someone that can just tell us we're not crazy for thinking or feeling what we're thinking or feeling, someone to affirm us, right? We don't want to uncritically accept everything that is told to us. This is much different, though, than saying everything is assumed false 
until it can unequivocally be shown otherwise. That's a pretty hard way to live. While Judaism is based on reason, debate, and study as an intellectual tradition, there's not such a distrust of experience and foundational truth or even of religious authority, right? Descartes wants to question it all. And um, perhaps we don't all want to question everything. Do I really want to question on a daily basis if I love the people I love? Do I really want to question on a daily basis if, if I exist? Do I really want to question if the moral commitments I have so deeply in me are really correct moral commitments? We also see in the Torah that the world contains misinformation, which must be carefully evaluated. When God asks Adam why he ate the forbidden fruit, he answers by pawning off responsibility. The woman, you put it at my side. You put it at my side. She gave of the tree and I ate. And then when God asked the woman, what is this you've done? The woman replied, the serpent duped me and I ate. Of course, this doesn't go over so well. The Torah knows that we have a tendency to attribute our, our failures to, to obedience, right? Uh, but we ultimately retain responsibility for our decisions. How much is a, is a Nazi responsible for their murders, right? Well, obviously, Hitler, Himmler, uh, Eichmann, people up top, we might hold ultimate responsibility. But if you're just a pawn in the Nazi regime, right, who's drunk the Kool-Aid of ideology or is just terrified for your life and you're um, committing, you're just um, obeying orders, how morally um, responsible is this person for, for such a decision? If you, um, you know, and as we're going to see in H Hannah Arendt later, Hannah Arendt, I don't want to say has some sympathy, but has some level of, of reducing responsibility for people who are just a cog in, in uh, the wheel. People are just part of a machine. If you're just a slave owner in the South and that's all you know, everyone around you is a slave owner and um, you buy and sell black people because that's what people do, right? Um, are you less morally culpable because that is um, the era you were born into? That's the historical context that you've emerged into? You have no sense of moral education that this is in any way wrong, right? And if we're just obeying, um, if we're just obeying, if you are... Okay, okay, there's countless examples. I don't have to keep going, right? If how much can obedience and how much can moral historical context be uh, factors in understanding, um, you know, whether we're doing right or wrong? And what Descartes is saying is no, break out, break out of your historical context, break out of the moral education you've received, right? You need to question it all. You can't just say, oh, I'm obeying authorities and I'm good. I'm just living by the norms of my time. In Judaism, by and large, we do trust our senses. We don't wonder whether the world deceives us, whether some evil demon is speaking within us. Of course, we must be skeptical of who is speaking the truth. And we're told explicitly to be aware of the false prophet, the Navi Sheker. And of course, there's a Yetzer Hara, the notion that there is a voice in us, which is teaching us to be selfish. It's just telling us to have whatever we want rather than live by our higher angels. 
We must do the often difficult work of fighting for truth and justice as things we can know. To be sure, we recognize that even God's word is not to be mindlessly accepted without doubt. Avraham challenges God when God threatens to destroy Sodom. And in more current times, Eli Wazel, after surviving the Shoah, the Holocaust, put God on trial in his play, The Trial of God. Descartes' challenge is very appropriate for the 21st century religious person. A pre-modern person rejects skepticism and embraces the absolute, of course there's a God, don't question it. Of course this is the good and that's the evil, don't question it. Don't be a heretic. While the postmodern person later doubts so much it undermines reason entirely. But Descartes, despite his unusual methods, seeks to land in a place where reason can be trusted, ultimately. He just needs a deep intellectual journey to get there. To conclude, friends, while in my worldview, I'm willing to pre-accept a lot more as given to us, I believe Descartes demonstrated the integrity and courage that many of us need today to know what we truly know and to be humble about what we don't know. Okay, dear friends. Um, oh, uh, thank you for that, Sarah. As it, uh, co, uh, cogito, as in get. It's a hard G. Cogito ergo sum. Yeah, that sounds more right. That's, um, I, I always question myself in Descartes' spirit about whether I'm saying it right. But <laughs> okay. All right, Lauren Blatt, you're up first. Hi. Oh, by the way, it's cogito, but that's okay. I took Latin in high school. You, you um, emphasize the last syllable, similar to Hebrew. Anyways, um, Descartes, I don't think, envisioned what would happen now. But I'm just bothered by too much skepticism. I mean, the, the anti-vaxxers who were like, do your own research. And of course, they look into the, the worst shtus that that could possibly be. Um, the achodeshtok and the... Um, you know, all, all the doubt that, that Putin uses in the, for people in the West to um, cause chaos, what, what Trump did with his misinformation. So I, I, I think we have to take Descartes with a little bit of a grain of salt. I mean, I think I, some skepticism, yeah, but too much. And if you just live with skepticism and you don't believe in anything, that's chaos. Great, great, Lauren. Thanks for that. Now, some of those examples you used, I don't think are, are I'm curious if you agree or not, I don't think are actually rooted in skepticism. I think they're actually rooted in a, in a commitment that's already been made, and they're using a language of humble skepticism, saying, look, I am committed uh, to being against the medical scientific establishment, and uh, because that's part of the system that I am here to drain the swamp of. Right. And I, I'm going to say it's skepticism, skeptical, but really I'm just rejecting. And so I think there's one form of skepticism where we say, oh, we have to question and we have to learn more and research. And another thing that's happening in society today that looks like skepticism, but is really just a rejection of truth, not really skepticism. Do you agree with that, Lauren? Yes, that makes sense. But they, um, they definitely have an agenda behind it. Thank you. For sure. So, yeah, you know, and I think, um, yeah, anyways, a lot more to say about that. 
But yeah, thank you for raising that because uh, it's very important. Hi, Cheryl. Nice to see you. Hi. Nice to see you too. Um, what about cynicism versus skepticism? I mean, sometimes I, I, I regard myself as a cynical person, but um, how, how do those two mesh? Okay, that's great. So um, I, first of all, I, 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 um, I, I, I don't view you as cynical um, for whatever, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> um, because my understanding of cynical, and then you could tell me if you're using operating on a different plane, a different kind of definition, I think is largely a, um, not just a skeptical about, about truth, but really kind of an assumption of distrust of people that cyn uh, I think a, a major part of the doubt that is a part of cynicism is a, kind of a mocking, a mocking of what people think. Oh, the dumb masses, they, they're kind of, um, there's a cynical laugh, like the people don't really know and that people are really purely motivated by self-interest. We can't trust anyone. I'm a cynic because I I don't trust anyone is telling the truth, not because truth is complicated, but because people are so selfish. And so I'm cynical that anyone around me is really honest. And so I can only trust myself. That's why, that's the definition I'm working on. And I don't view you as all like that, Cheryl. Um, so <laughs> no, tell me I, how- I, I, would, I, I would have to say then, I would go more with the, the whole- um, I, I'm skeptical of a lot of things, you right, know, when right. I hear, when I hear things, you know, it's like, you look, you know, I, I, um, uh, in my head or, or, you know, on my mind, I kind of look askance at something that, that, you know, has been, has been presented and, you know, come on, come yes. on now, come on, you know, come on. I don't. And, and it's because I don't believe that that's, the the real truth so I, that's why i was thinking well gee i regard myself as this but maybe i'm that and maybe right. there's there's truth in uh right. both of those so oh good yeah. yeah excellent right <laughs> but would you say you're would you say you're generally distrusting of people's motives um it just depends who the people are <laughs> okay great great yeah great no i mean we are trained as jews to um be questioning and yeah. be skeptical. And we know today, most certainly, and this is not um, this is not being cynical about people, but we know that every person's ideas are informed by biases. It is simply impossible to remove ourselves from bias. But when I say bias, I don't necessarily mean um, hateful biases, right? Like racism, yeah. sexism. I just mean like all of our thinking is colored by our experiences. Well, There's no way not to be. Right. Just, to, I mean, look at like which, which news station you watch, right. you know, right. if you believe that that is the truth, then right. you regard the other as the untruth right. or, you know, false. So, right. you know, it just, I, yeah. I, I mean, so, I, and I like yeah. your, uh, I also like your example in this day and age that how, how Descartes really preceded all of this by, by centuries in, you know, the whole AI experience and is it real and is it real? Right. And so it, right. that's the whole thing. I mean, we have a, a new definition of what is truth and what is not. So, yes, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and I think that's exactly right. And I think that, um, to you know, some academics who aren't humble will pretend like <laughs> they actually have access to this unbiased view 
of of truth and people will treat them like as if that's possible right but my gosh you know i mean all ac- and and this is where where the right where the right wing is right about being skeptical of academia um and, and the liberal bias right because it's true academia is informed by a liberal bias now it happens to be biases that um inform my thinking too <laughs> And I largely <laughs> support those, right? But um, but by and large, it's just true. And there are some people who like a politician so much that they can actually be deceived for a moment that that person is also not deceived or or you know influenced by needing to politically stay alive or to raise money or they're like they're like yeah. you know and that this is this person is like pure in some sense. Now I'm not accusing humanity of being deceitful that's not what i'm saying it's 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 just simply true that like i i think that like <laughs> we can't escape our minds we can't escape um our experiences and um and so um take that and with, with someone we really love and trust that's also true we know that um we're all limited we're all limited so oh my gosh so much more to say here but let's go to ethan and then aglaia Hi, Rabbi. Hi, everybody. Um, it's wonderful to be all back together again. Um, I am excited because I'm actually reading a book that I have here with me uh, called The Grace of Dogs. And it's written by a, a Christian theologian, actually, named Andrew Root. Um, and sort of the crux of the entire book is focused on trying to discover the canine soul, whether or not his black lab, uh, who he loved so dearly and he had a connection to, had a soul, in the very beginning of his uh, experiment, thought experiment into this question uh, begins with Descartes. And I want to uh, just quickly read an excerpt from it that I think is relevant to our discussion today. He says that as a young boy, Descartes watched Europe burn as Catholics and Protestants fought and killed one another during the Thirty Years' War. A particularly clever young man, he sought to make war obsolete by finding some common ground of religious or moral ideology that all people could agree on. And this is what led him to the, to his uh, discovery, his, his uh, declaration uh, that Rabbi Shmuley spoke about earlier, which is that I think, therefore, I am. And that this discovery, he thought, uh, was the revelation uh, that he believed, quote, had done more than just discover a solid foundation on which both Catholics and Protestants could agree upon. But more than that, he thought that he had discovered the shape of the soul itself. And so I think that uh, it's interesting, as uh, Lauren uh, and Cheryl have, have pointed out, that uh, in present day, this notion of skepticism has become a tool being used to potentially divide us, but that actually at the uh, development and the discovery of this sort of theological um, revelation, that it was actually discovered in, in a way, in, in some hope to try to bring us closer together, that that by our own autonomous thought, um, that that was something that we could agree upon and that could be a foundation for unity. So I wanted to share that. Um, it's wonderful to be with you all and thank you for the discussion. Very cool. Nice to bring that, that book into this. Um, thank you for that. And, you know, that question of, or just one thing you touched on in your, in your point there, of like what's happening inside someone else, um, a dog, what's happening inside the dog's mind or soul. Forget even that, what's happening in the other person. Descartes did go as far to say, I think therefore I am, but he's not sure you exist. 
right? I can know I exist, but I can't know you exist, right? Only you can know that because you're the one thinking inside of yourself. Now, this is really, um, uh, if I say I love you and you tell me, you look in my eyes and say you love me, I know what I'm feeling is true, but how do I know when you say you love me, it's true? How do I know it's not a power play? How do I know it's not you just being nice to me because you don't want to hurt my feelings that you don't love me? Right? How do I know when you say you love me, you do? Your actions seem to demonstrate you love me, but how do I know? And so too, I mean, one of the things that's always perplexed me since I was a little kid is, you know those videos where you can watch a lion chasing down a zebra and then he just tears it apart and eats it, you know? It's just so hard to watch for me um, because I'm like, how could the lion do that? It senses the fear of the zebra. It hears the cry of the zebra and it just bites into its flesh and eats it while it's crying. It's like impossible. And it's not like, oh, that's the mean lion and the nice lion doesn't do it. They all do that, right? So what's going on over there? And the best conclusion I've come to is not that the lion is cruel. Um, I mean, the the lion is hardwired differently to simply not hear the cry of the zebra. The lion simply sees food and in the state of hunger is overwhelmed by a state of hunger in a way where some notion of empathy, if it's even possible, is simply not alive. Some ability to hear the cry of the zebra simply doesn't exist. Now, you're a psychopath if you're a human who does that. If you go and you're physically attacking a human being, and you don't hear their cry, you're sociopath or whatever the right word is. You know, um, an, an av- a normal human would have the capacity of empathy to hear the cry, right? That there's something wrong if you don't. But the lion can't hear that. The lion, the lion is not making an immoral choice by tearing apart the zebra while they cry, right? The being is simply hardwired differently to exist in this world. And so too, in human diversity, we can just hear things differently, right? Based on our traumas. And based upon our experiences, where some of us hear the a cry, and we can't believe someone else can't hear that cry, like, whoa, are we on a different like experiential level? Don't you hear that person crying, and it, you know, it awaken empathy that that homeless people shouldn't have to live in the streets? I'm like, no, actually, like, don't hear that. Like, they can go get a job, you know, or like, I just hear, I, I fill in the blank of experiences where. People can kind of hear something and not, and we're just hardwired in some ways differently to respond to that. And even just cognitive overload or affective overload in spaces of suffering. You know, there are people in times of war who can shoot people and and like be doing okay with that and others who are really suffering through that. There are doctors who can cut open to flesh and like it's really not hard for them and other people who are, squ- are squeamish or squeamish, squirmish, squeamish around like cutting into skin. It's just, it just, right. We're just hardwired differently. You might say to like, be able to respond to that. Okay. So um, yeah. Does the dog have a soul? Like what's going on in them? I don't even know what's going on in Ethan Woodoff's soul. Um, I, and I'm trying to figure out what's going in a Shmuley Yanklowitz's soul. You know, my dog, you know, <laughs> that's even further. Aglaya, over to you. Okay, so ironically, I was supposed to stay. I was told myself to stay a little bit more quiet today, but you brought up academics, so I had to jump in. (laughs) So one, this whole thing about liberal biases among academics, though, and this is actually going to get to a really good point at some point, but the thing is is that um, academics are convinced 
of their liberal biases a little too much because there are a lot of very, um, well, if I can tell, there's a lot I can talk about just generally in personal experience, what I've seen, there's a lot of very transphobia, homophobia, like still within history as, you know, an entire discipline, not to mention all the crazy racism and sexism that goes on. Okay. But um, that would take too long to get into. All right. So that's where I come to my actual point, though. Okay. Um, see, Descartes has this thing where thinking is going to eventually lead you to something. And I'm not exactly sure that that's really true, first of all. And second, the other thing, though, is that um, reality, um, I think that the way that people define reality is this is real and this is not real. And thinking actually will tell you what is real and your senses will tell you what is real. And, you know, I mean, somehow, like, it, it just doesn't work out that way. Now, the reason why I can talk about that is from personal experience also, because I made a huge, huge mistake and I ended up making a complete, you know, idiot of myself and everything, because the short version, shortest way to talk about this is, um, remember where I live, Louisiana. Now, at one point in time in my life, I was all rationalist and nobody is dumb. If anybody is dumb enough to try, you know, spells or try to contact evil things on Ouija boards or something like, even if someone's dumb enough to try this, nothing's going to happen, right? Um, it doesn't exactly work that way because what I underestimated is that people believe that something happened. And it might be more significant that someone believes that something happened. Now, or say, for instance, unicorns. We say we don't believe in unicorns because, you know, but here's the thing, though. Are unicorns we real because they're a concept also? So in the way that I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that, um, I mean, I might be going a little too postmodernist on the whole thing, though, but um, I think that Descartes had something about questioning your own thinking, but I don't think that... I don't know, like, I mean, this whole idea that, you know, like, he kind of stops where he's thinking and just, you know, I don't know. He stops where he's thinking, and I'm kind of, like, thinking, you know, along the lines of, no, there's more to it than thinking. There's empathy. There are all kinds of, so sometimes maybe we need to just not put so much faith in thinking. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much, Aglaia, for all that. And I'm curious to hear others' reactions to all of that. Um you know, it, one of the things I was thinking when you were, when you were saying all that, raise your hand if you're a Ted Lasso fan. <laughs> Any Ted Lasso fans here? <laughs> okay, raise your hand if you don't know what I'm talking about. That's okay too. Okay, so um, yeah, so it, uh, I'll keep it brief though, since everyone's not in on that. But the notion of believe, um, like what is it we're believing in? And um, oh my gosh, I, I shouldn't have opened this. I could just go go say too much. But what is it we believe in? And um, does it have to be provable? Does it have to be thought through? And what does it mean if we just um, believe in something that's irrational in many senses? And, and what does it mean to collectively believe and build a unity, build a culture around that belief? Um, and it could it actually turn out that children um, are more right than us to believe in things so much more easily than us? Um, I mean... Some of it feels like fairy tales. Like when I, when I, when my child believes in the tooth fairy and I know I'm the tooth fairy, um, is, is there something deeper they're tapping into by believing in a tooth fairy? I'm like, no, I'm the tooth fairy. There's nothing else to believe in. But actually like what is happening in that, in that deeper realm? And, you know, um, one of the ways the Maharao got to a religious pluralism 
was he said, okay, let's take Muslims, Christians, and Jews. All right. So they're going to have different notions of who God is and, um, or if there's a God. And if we, if we compare the, the final belief, say, no, these are incompatible, right? These are just incompatible, separate beliefs. You're going to have to choose one, right? But he says, if you choose to believe not in what is believed in, but in the origin of belief, that place of origin of belief is similar in all people. That that notion of where our belief emerges from within the soul, that notion of a desire for belief, a desire for a connection, that kind of there, there can be a, a pluralism of truth. All of us have a belief in something higher, potentially, that emerges within the same place within the human spirit. And that is what we share, right? More than kind of what we call that or how we describe that ultimately. Now, another way that was kind of explained, it's kind of a little bit humorous. I've used this example before, but I don't think I fleshed it out this way before. You know, there's a famous example in the Talmud that talks about, um, if if you were in our kindness series, you might remember this on, on a class on truth, where the, in the Talmud it says um, that you can tell a lie for human dignity, right? Now, not always, but there are these rare occurrences and the comical slash potentially offensive example is you always tell the bride she's beautiful, right? When you see the bride on her wedding day, you don't go over and say, I don't like your hair. That's rude to set, tell the bride you don't like her hair. You go over to the bride and you say, you look beautiful. doesn't matter if you're feeling her beauty or objectively think she's beautiful. You say, you look beautiful, right? That's what you say. And the Talmud says, and if you think she doesn't look beautiful, you still say that. You tell the bride she looks beautiful, right? Um, now, one of the rabbis emerges over there and says, actually, you're net, you're, and if you remember this example, um, if you don't think she's beautiful and you tell her she's beautiful, you're not lying because the person marrying her thinks she's beautiful. And you're expressing the truth that that person feels in the room, Right? Now, that's interesting that sometimes telling the truth is not telling your truth, but telling a truth that people believe in. Um, you're telling the bride that she is that someone here views her as beautiful. So, too, if I say Allah is God, I don't believe in Allah. I don't really even know who Allah is. Right. But I might be a religious pluralist and say, oh, Allah, your God is also the same God I'm praying to. Right. But I might not. I might think you, the way Muslims are talking about God is different than how I might talk about divinity. It's separate. You're welcome to believe your truth. I believe my truth. But I, when I say Allah is God, what I might be saying is. I believe you believe your truth. And I think there's an integrity to your belief. I think when you say you pray to Allah and I don't really understand that or believe that, I think there's an integrity to your belief that that's what you think is happening. And I think that that's true. I think that that's not a capital T true, that I can prove it or that I believe it. But I think there's a truth to the integrity of what you're doing. And if there's a God, I think God hears your prayers maybe even because um, there's an integrity to that. So, um, yeah. And so that's kind of long-winded, just kind of my bounce-off reaction to something much bigger Aglaia was bringing up. Okay, let's go over to Sarah, if Sarah wants to jump in here. I do, but I want to go way back to the beginning of this. Great. When you started out by saying that we believe what our parents tell us, 
And I think that speaks to what you're just saying about as a child or all of us have this piece of our soul or spirit that wants to believe because I see children all the time who are so severely traumatized and still love their parents no matter how much they're beaten and starved and mistreated and and it's that that wish we have to have something right that is ours that we can love that we even as adults we look back and we go they told us that that wasn't true so when i go back generation after generation after generation it's like what truth am i actually hearing and what is it that i'm really supposed to be believing is it indeed the spirit underneath all of that Mm, mm. which i'm being invited to see as truth or Mm -hmm. is there truth to what we've been given fed (laughs) take your pick Beautiful. Thank you, Sarah. Really, two two big things here, at least. Um, this really powerful point around the needs of our spirit um, and being able to listen to I don't want to put words in their mouth because you were saying something much bigger. But I mean, the, the fact that we're able to love people who hurt us so much um, and understanding what our spirit is trying to cling to, um, ultimately, and um, on this unique perspective of why deception from parents is so heavy because every parent deceives their child, some very significantly and some very lightly, and they continue to do it throughout their lives for various reasons because they want their child to view them in a certain way um, and um, or they want them to believe certain things. But as a young child, all the more so, when we hug our child and tell them everything's going to be all right, when we don't know it's going to be all right. I mean, yes, that might be the loving right thing to do for a parent with a three-year-old child, but it's also technically deceptive um, when we're assuring someone they're okay when they're not necessarily okay. And so, um, but there's other types of deception from parents that are so traumatic and and earth shattering because it, it, it makes us question everything they say. Um, in a way that uproots our whole sense of truth. Now, if you're 22 and come to that realization, you can probably get over it. But if you're five and come to the conclusion that your parents can't be trusted, fundamentally, not maybe in their moral decency or even in their ability to acquire truth or that they're fundamentally deceptive, that's very hard to get um, to get your head around. Um, and it, that's very destabilizing in the ability to trust anyone. And we might sound like, oh, someone just needs a a quick therapy session to get over that. Uh Uh-uh. That ability to rebuild trust when from very early developmental stages it was shattered, very hard to come back to. Okay. Uh, Yes, Ed, we'd love to hear from you. And and since I see your hand up, Lauren, if you want to type it in the chat, that would be amazing. Yes. Um, Hi, Ed. I just wanted to comment on your uh, issues of the beliefs of others. Um, In the sort of training and experience that I've had with sitting with people who are dying. Uh, One of the things they said that you do not want to do is to try to change their beliefs. Mm. Um, They might not believe in God, 
but they're asking you about death. And you have to just accept that whatever they believe is what they believe based on their experience and their knowledge and go from there and not try to say, well, God says this, or I believe this, but to accept what they believe and go forward. So the question I would have is probably from Descartes' perspective is, was there a distinction between belief and truth? Ah, because wow. yeah. that sets up a duality where you must choose between is it truth or not? Whereas I think in all of the examples I've heard today is there's something in between there that would say, no, it's not good or bad. It's, you know, some continuum between those two points. So that when you think about it is, no, that's truth or not truth, you're kind of stuck with trying to figure it out. Whereas I think in reality, there's some sort of in between there that would say, it's okay if you believe it because you're believing it based on your experience. I might believe something different, but I will accept that you believe what you believe. But if you come across as saying, no, this is the truth, then I might object to that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I make that distinction because that's where we would be in sitting with people who are dying and trying to get sort of comfort them about uh, the dying process and then death itself is find out where their beliefs are at. And if you are in disagreement, don't try to convert them, but rather get further explanation. Listen to where they're coming from. Awesome, Ed. Thank you for that. I'm going to share my screen on one point you made that's fundamental to epistemology, how we know what is true. And a lot of it has to do with this kind of overlap of truth and belief. And so there is this notion of truth, there is this realm of belief, and there's a whole bunch of space that doesn't overlap, and there's a whole bunch of space that does overlap, because there's truths we might agree are true, but we don't really believe them, right? And then there's beliefs we have, which are simply not true, and that overlap space is that space of knowledge. And that's kind of a little bit of um, external, internal, a little bit of of, um, mind and world. But to go to your more specific point, I think that, that, and it's so profound, is what does it mean to be in a relationship where we don't try to change people's beliefs? Um, in a counseling relationship, in a therapy relationship, in a teacher relationship, in a um, in an end-of-life situation. And I think we're so used to a world that is trying to sh- change people's beliefs. In fact, that's what we th- uh, many people think they mean by let's change the world. I'm going to change the world by changing how people think. There's racists, I'm going to make them non-racist. There's atheists, I'm going to make them believers. There's believers, I'm going to make them atheists. The way you change the world is by changing people's beliefs so that they believe better things like I do, right? Liberals think that, conservatives think that, religious people think that, atheists think that. What if we just were in some relationships where we say, look, I'm just here to affirm you. I'm just here to be in a relationship with you, not to change your thinking. Um, that's a profound thing to think about. And whether you believe something profoundly different than me, 
Um, being in a space where I can simply hear that and not try to change you opens up a whole new level of trust and being together, which is worth exploring. I'm not saying that there's not some some forms of thinking or belief we don't want to change in the world, or there's not there's not a case to be made for moral persuasion um, or for ideological um, uh, intervention, <laughs> but that's also a really powerful thing, all the more so in, in spaces of care, in spaces where we're taking care of someone, where a therapist is trying to change someone's beliefs um, in, in certain realms or the like. So thank you. Friends, we may have said we're not doing class next week, but that's not true. We are on. We are on next week uh, together. So if you don't have that noted, I look forward to going forward with you all. Thank you. It's so wonderful to see you. Have a wonderful day.